Well, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 42, Acts 5, beginning in verse 12, making our way through verse 42, if the Lord permits, and if not, we'll just pick right back up next Lord's Day. Uh, At least that will be the plan. Uh, I do want to mention something to you before we read our text together. The church is a family, fundamentally. And uh, one of the primary images, in in fact, I would argue the primary image of the church in the New Testament is that of a family. So consistently there are these exhortations given uh, to respect the older men and women among you. Fathers, mothers, the image is used. Uh, Paul the Apostle is often addressing Christians as brothers and sisters. He will call others his children in the faith. John will say, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. And of course, we as parents, biological parents or adoptive parents, uh, have that same sense for our children. But that's, that's a spiritual understanding of the church as a, as a family. And so John there is talking about those perhaps he has mentored in the faith. The church is fundamentally a spiritual family unto eternity. And um, I had the privilege of pastoring a smaller church a number of years ago and been here now for almost three years uh, but we, we also are a spiritual family, even as a larger church. And recently, um, I, I didn't have the privilege of getting to know her well, but I did want to make mention of this dear sister and mother in the faith who is now with the Lord. We didn't mention this last Lord's Day. I did attend the funeral and had, had the joy of hearing her son and others bear testimony to her faith and her prayers um, and her steadfastness. And this is a sister, a mother in the faith that has been a member here for so many years. And her name is Lillian Britton. And I just, I wanted to let you all know about this dear sister. Some of you in the room know Lillian, and, and you've had the privilege of hearing from her, uh, hearing the gospel preached by this mother in the faith. Uh, you had the privilege of praying with her. Others of you, though, there is a substantial portion in the room, uh, doubtless, that have never met Lillian Britton. And... Um, after conversing with a sister about a week ago or so, it really would be a tragedy for you not to be aware that there are mothers and fathers in the faith who have poured out their lives in service to Christ and his church here at First Baptist Powell. And we are heirs of the grace of God at work through them. And Lillian Britton is one of those mothers. So I just wanted to make you aware of, of Lillian, especially those of you who have never heard of her, but now you have, and she would want all attention, all glory, all honor to be given to Jesus Christ. And so let's take just a moment. I wanna pray for her family and uh, for the loss the body of Christ has experienced um, on account of Lillian's passing into the presence of the Lord, and then we'll turn here to Acts chapter five. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege. It is a privilege to be a member of your family. To be one that has received the spirit of God who bears witness with our spirits that we are sons and daughters of yours. And as we become your sons and daughters, we inherit siblings. We inherit older, more seasoned brothers and sisters in the faith. We, over time, even will serve as spiritual fathers and mothers to others. 
We want to praise you for the life of faithfulness lived by a dear sister and mother in the faith, Lillian Britton. We pray, God, that you would continue to be near this family, that you'd be near us as a church as we have suffered the loss of a dear sister. And we pray that you would continue to raise up women and men of faith, prayer, and boldness in the gospel here at First Baptist Powell. Do this, O God, until the day we have the privilege of worshiping with Lillian in your presence, and especially on the day when Jesus Christ, your son, returns from heaven. In his name and for his sake we pray, amen. Thank you all for indulging me for just a moment with that privilege. Acts chapter five, verses 12 through 42. And because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, would you please stand a substantial text this morning? We're gonna read the whole text. We're gonna read the whole text. It is, after all, the only infallible portion of our worship service. Acts chapter five, beginning in verse 12 Luke wrote, recorded as he was carried along by the Spirit of God, these words. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the apostles, rather among the people, excuse me, by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found them, found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers 
raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. Well, he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, that is the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated, church family. One of the themes of the early chapters of the book of Acts is the explosive growth of the church following the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the subsequent descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. In fact, the church that began with around 120 people in Acts chapter 1 verse 15 had grown by the time of Acts chapter 2 verse 41 to around 3,000 people, just over. And likely by Acts chapter 4, the church had grown to approximately 15,000 people. This rapid growth was showing no signs of slowing down in Acts chapter 5. In fact, in Acts chapter 5 verse 14, multitudes of men and women were still being added to the church through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, on the one hand, this explosive growth must have been incredibly encouraging for the apostles and for the other leaders who were participating in this movement that was eventually to be known as Christianity. On the other hand, the more the church grew, the more attention the church received from those who were less than sympathetic for the claims of Christianity. 
The growth experienced in the first few chapters of the book of Acts has already attracted the ire of the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, if you've been with us, we observed this in Acts chapter four, where Peter and John were actually arrested for healing a crippled man outside of the temple gate known as beautiful and subsequently preaching the gospel in the temple and in particular in Solomon's portico. Because of this, the Jewish leaders had Peter and John taken into custody and And warned Peter and John the following day after they spent an evening in jail that they must not teach and preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. Well, in our text, the public ministry of Peter and John and even the other apostles continues to grow as they teach and preach Jesus as the Messiah to the Jewish people. And the Jewish leaders have had just about enough of this pesky, movement that is stealing some of their followers. Well, Luke recorded all of this to highlight what the church really must be about until Jesus Christ returns, even amid persecution. So there is a sense in which what we're going to do this morning is ask and answer one question. And the question is this, what must the church be about until Jesus Christ returns? returns. What is the central activity of the church in between the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost and Jesus' return in the future when he makes all things new? So that's the question we're going to ask and answer together, and we're going to do this by walking through our text and making three observations. If you're taking notes, you can jot down these three observations, and we'll unpack them as they surface in the text. First of all, we're going to look together at what I have called God's power through the apostles. God's power through the apostles. Second, we will find persecution against the apostles. Not only do we find God's power being manifested through the apostles, but we continue to see that there is immense persecution that is being arrayed against and applied to the apostles. And we'll look together at that persecution. Then finally, after looking together at God's power through the apostles and persecution against the apostles, we will conclude by identifying the persistence of the apostles. The persistence of the apostles. Now, younger worshipers, those of you in the room uh, who are at a younger age, and parents and grandparents, I do this each week now just to give you some opportunities to engage with your younger worshipers who had their Bibles open this morning or who perhaps later today uh, you can engage with in the Word of God. We want to make sure that we emphasize that our younger worshipers are here as participants and we want to teach them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength as they spend time in the text of Scripture. So younger worshipers, there are a couple of things I want you to look for as we're marching through this text, okay? So pay close attention to these two things. First of all, notice how did the apostles get out of prison? In our text, how did the apostles go from being in prison to getting out of prison? What happens in the text? And then secondly, younger worshipers, look for this. How did the apostles respond when they were beaten 
for the name of Christ. This is toward the end of our text this morning. But how did the apostles respond when they were actually beaten for the name of Jesus Christ? Well, let's begin by looking together at our first observation this morning, God's power through the apostles. Look with me, if you would, at verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. One of the characteristics of the early church, and in particular the apostolic church, was the presence of signs and wonders, as Luke tells us. By the way, signs and wonders is just a way of summarizing the presence of miraculous and supernatural occurrences. God displayed his power through the ministry of apostles like Peter and John and the others. And he did this for several reasons, not the least of which was to validate the message of the gospel. This was the case, by the way, throughout the canon of scripture. Think about Moses' ministry as the prophet of Israel. When he embraced the call to serve as the prophet among the people of Israel, God granted various signs to demonstrate that indeed God had called him as the leader of Israel, right? And so God actually thrust plagues on the people of Egypt, demonstrated that the message Moses was preaching was indeed from the Lord. This is the case throughout the canon of scripture. This is, this is also the case through the ministry of the apostles, As they're ministering, God is granting his power through these miracles that serve to validate the message they are preaching. Now remember, remember this is immediately after the birth, really we could say, the birth of the New Covenant Church. I don't want to go too far afield on this issue, but I think it is informative to notice something in the text. I want you to note That these signs and wonders are identified, and this is the language Luke uses as he's carried along by the Spirit. They're identified as regularly done by the hands of the apostles. So they're regularly done by the hands of the apostles. There was a regular appearance for these miracles, and somehow they were directly related to the leadership of these Apostles that are, in a sense, laying the foundation of the church. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes the unique work of an apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. He writes, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Well, what were those signs? Signs of a true apostle. He goes on to say, With signs and wonders, and mighty works. Now, what I'm not suggesting is signs and wonders and miraculous deeds were limited to the presence of an apostle or the ministry of an apostle. For example, Stephen. Just in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, we'll see soon. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, who was not an apostle, but was one of the first deacons, was a man through whom God performed signs and Wonders. However, it does seem to me to be significant that the era of apostolic oversight and ministry was characterized, now don't miss this, by the regular occurrence of signs and wonders. This matters. 
What I'm not suggesting is that God no longer performs signs and wonders through the church. In fact, I think he does. However, however, I do believe, I do believe that there was something unique about the concentration and regularity of these miracles in the early church. Now, good brothers and sisters disagree with me on this, and that's okay. Um, We can all share a place in the family of God known as the body of Christ. That's perfectly fine. Moreover, I celebrate the presence of any miracle that bears testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same God who is at work through the apostles is the God who is at work through us. The same spirit of God the apostles actually were inspired by and the same spirit of God that worked through the apostles is the same spirit of God at work among us. However, throughout church history, it was quite common. In fact, even in the second century, it was quite common to talk about the apostolic era as being somewhat unique. Not because God ceased granting signs and wonders, but because the regularity of those signs and wonders appeared to be uniquely connected to the presence of the apostles. Perhaps I'm wrong. I'll be glad to be wrong. As long as, again, whoever is exercising signs and wonders and miracles is doing so, is doing so in the name of Jesus Christ and bearing testimony indeed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is clear in the text, however, what is clear is that the ministry of the apostles was characterized by the powerful presence of Miracles, after all, verses 15 and 16 demonstrate that people even brought their sick into the streets. Why? So that as Peter passed by, his shadow might fall on some of them and they would be healed. Additionally, additionally, actually, verse 16 goes on to tell us that many people who who had sick friends and family members or those who were afflicted by unclean spirits. They brought them to Jerusalem, to the church. And Luke tells us they were all healed. So what is, what is apparent in the text is God is indeed validating the message of the gospel in this newly birthed church through the ministry of the apostles. And he's doing so by granting his powerful presence his powerful presence that manifested itself in signs and wonders. Now look with me at verses 13 and 14, if you would. Verse 13 and verse 14. None of the rest dared join them. How about that? We mentioned this last Lord's Day. None of the rest dared join them. And he goes on to say, but the people held them in high esteem. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the church. Multitudes of both men and women. So which is it? None of the rest dared join them, and multitudes of believers were added to the church. You see the tension? I would submit to you that these two verses offer complementary truths. None of the rest of the Jews who did not place their allegiance and faith in Jesus Christ joined them. However, everyone who was coming to trust in Jesus Christ did join them. That's the point. The church wasn't 
considered a safe place for those who did not embrace Jesus Christ in faith and live a life in submission to Jesus Christ. It would have been foreign to this church, the apostolic church, as it were, to make it the aim of the church to make everybody comfortable in the church so the church could grow numerically. No, no, they were, they were highly esteemed by the surrounding community. There were others, of course, that, that recognized them and, and admired them and respected them. But to go into the church and to try to join the church for any other reason except allegiance to Jesus Christ would have been foreign. What has just happened is the tragedy with Ananias and Sapphira. And, and word circulated that there were two members of the church that on account of their hypocrisy and duplicity were struck dead in the middle of the church, in front of others, in front of the Apostle Peter and perhaps even others because of their hypocrisy and duplicity. This communicated to the surrounding community. Indeed, indeed, Jesus Christ was demonstrating that sin is taken seriously, but additionally, what was being communicated is God's family was to be characterized by a fear of the Lord. Those who were redeemed were to live a life, and not of perfection, but of faithfulness, legible faithfulness. They were transformed people, as, as Eric mentioned even just a few moments ago concerning our theme this past year at FBA. And so I think this is the way we understand verses 13 and 14. On the one hand, the church was highly esteemed in the broader community, but those Jews that did not place their faith in Jesus Christ didn't dare join. They kept their distance. The only reason to join was because you trusted in Christ. You recognized that you were a sinner in need of a savior and Jesus was and remains God's Messiah. That's why you joined the church. Second, our second observation in the text this morning is persecution against the apostles in addition to God's power through the apostles. Look with me, if you would, at verses 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now, this is the second imprisonment that some of the apostles Faced. You, you may recall if you've been with us that in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were placed in custody, in prison. But this time it seems that all the apostles are arrested, or at least a representative number of the apostles were arrested. However, the Lord continued to manifest his power among the apostles. And, and the story moves quite quickly because of the bulk of the text. We're not gonna go through every detail, but the high priest has them arrested. They're placed into prison. And then immediately Luke tells us what? An angel of the Lord appears in the middle of the night and miraculously sets the apostles free. We're not told how he does this, we're not told. And there's actually some speculation throughout church history on exactly how this took place. All we know is that an angel of the Lord came and miraculously demonstrated God's power through the apostles again amid persecution by setting them free and commanded them to go back to the temple as soon as the sun was up and keep proclaiming the gospel of Jesus 
Christ. Now, the Jewish leaders caught wind that their prisoners were in the temple proclaiming the message of Christ, the very reason they were arrested. And they're back at it again. So the captain of the temple guards and the officers went and brought them again to the council where the high priest questioned them. Now glance down at verse 28, if you would. We're moving about here somewhat quickly, but look at verse 28. And here's the rebuke given to the apostles. Now they've arrested them again, but not by force this time, right? Because there's fear. Some of the people are following them. And here's what the high priest says. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. That is the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You just refuse to listen. That's interesting, isn't it? That these miracles are taking place. God's power is being manifested through the ministry of the apostles. And the hearts of these Jewish leaders are so hardened they refuse to listen to the message God is clearly declaring to them. By the way, brothers and sisters, this is the nature of unbelief. You can never argue someone into faith. You'll never be able to argue someone into faith in Jesus Christ. Now, our refusal to embrace the gospel is fundamentally, Romans 1, a moral problem. The Apostle Paul tells us that all of humanity, outside of God's effectual grace in Christ, all of humanity does what? Suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And that's even just concerning the existence of the living God. How much more the gospel that is overtly opposed by anyone who has not embraced Jesus Christ. And faith and the Jewish religious leaders are an example of this rebellion against God that all of us, all of us suffer from since Genesis chapter three. And the Jewish leaders eventually become enraged and their rage turns into the desire to kill the apostles in verse 33. And just as Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. He prepared the apostles for these moments. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And that's precisely what's happening in the text. Friends, church family, commitment to the gospel will result in loss. It always does. It always does. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in one of his classic works, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We may lose our friendships on account of trusting in Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ. We may lose a job. We may lose our comfort. We may lose financial stability. We may lose an amount of freedom. Some of us may have the stewardship of losing our very lives but the gospel, every time, every time, an embrace of the gospel comes with tremendous loss. And the apostles are experiencing such loss in the text. By the way, young people, 
if I can encourage you to embrace any reality concerning following Jesus Christ, it's this. Through the gospel, you will have to sacrifice popularity. Through the gospel, you will have to sacrifice friendships. On account of Christ, you will experience excruciating loss. Christ promises this. However, with the Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, you will be able to say, indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Indeed, he goes on to say, indeed, I count everything as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's precisely what the apostles are experiencing in the text, and it is indeed the case for us today as followers of Jesus Christ. I should say at this point, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior over your life, you need to know that the message we preach is, is not come to Jesus and have a happier, healthier, and wealthier life. In fact, coming to Christ may, may result in the loss of your temporary happiness. Coming to embrace Jesus Christ may actually mean you forfeiting health and wealth that are temporary. However, being willing to forfeit all of this for the sake of knowing and serving the Savior who lived, died, and was raised from the dead on the third day will result in your eternal joy in Christ. That's the message of the gospel. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, then we'd encourage you to have a conversation with us. We would love to talk with you about what it means to embrace Christ at the cost of your entire life and why it is that Christians actually claim that it's better to die for Christ than to live without him. If that's where you are, then join us after the service for a conversation as you leave this room. Take a left on the way out and on the right-hand side out there before you leave this building is that room I mentioned earlier called Crossroads. Go in there and have a conversation with us. We would love to come alongside of you and you potentially alongside of us as we learn to treasure in and serve this all-sufficient Savior Jesus, our Lord. Well, the murderous desires of the Jewish leaders in the text are stymied by the wisdom of a respected Pharisee. And this Pharisee is named Gamaliel. Look with me at verses 38 and 39 where Gamaliel exhorts the Jewish council he says, after, by the way, he mentions a couple of movements, of movements led by Thutis and a movement led by Judas of, of Galilee, Judas the Galilean. Those were just two of the many movements at the time. After he mentions these two movements that rose up, these messianic-like movements and eventually dissolved, he says this, beginning in verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Be careful, he says. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So Luke tells us they listened to him. However, they chose to beat the apostles. 
In other words, they decided not to kill them. But they still wanted to teach them a lesson. They chose to beat the apostles and then threaten them again. Stop proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And they let them go. So far, we have identified the power of God through the apostles in the text. This power was manifested through the presence of various signs and wonders through the apostles. Secondly, we discovered persecution against the apostles as the Jewish leaders arrested them, interrogated them, and eventually beat them before warning the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Finally, finally, let's look together at the persistence of the apostles. The persistence of the apostles. Why did why did the apostles receive persecution from the Jewish leaders? It's actually quite simple, isn't it? Because they were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even after they were arrested in the text, the angel of the Lord released them and instructed them to go back to the temple and proclaim Jesus in verse 20. They were arrested a second time and reminded by the Jewish leaders they were no longer to teach in the name of Jesus. And this second arrest... And the third arrest, actually, for Peter and John. In this arrest, the apostles responded in verses 29 to 32 with these words, we must obey God rather than men. And then they proclaimed the same message that got them into trouble with the Jewish leaders. And now they're proclaiming this message to the Jewish leaders. They go on to say in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So even amid persecution, even amid opposition, even even having been arrested for proclaiming Christ and now standing in front of the Jewish leaders. Amid all of this, the apostles persisted in teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Did you notice that in verse 21, proclaiming the gospel was actually an issue of obedience to God. Peter said it this way, we must obey God rather than men. Christianity, you see, has always recognized and respected temporary authorities on the basis of passages like Romans 13 and others. So for example, a hallmark of Christianity has been to teach followers of Jesus to respect governing officials, respect parents, respect grandparents, and so on and so forth. However, whenever lesser authorities command what God has prohibited or prohibit what God has commanded, the church consistently must say, we must obey God rather than men. And that's precisely what's happening in the text for the church to recoil from proclaiming Christ would be for the church to disobey God's clear instruction. Jesus Christ was perfectly clear, wasn't he? At the end of Matthew's gospel, as he appears to 
the disciples who would eventually be apostles that he sends out and perhaps even others and he gives what is now known as the Great Commission and he commissions them to go and make disciples of all nations. You see, this is an issue of obedience to God. If the church ceases proclaiming the gospel, the church is in disobedience to God. And so whenever an authority, no matter the authority, actually prohibits that Christians proclaim Christ any longer, those Christians must, by the power of the Spirit of God, boldly be able to say, while we respect you as a God-appointed authority, your authority is underneath the sovereign authority of the God who made you. And we must obey God rather than men. Finally, look with me at verses 41 and 42. As we are seeing that the apostles, even amid persecution, persist in teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 41, then they, that is the apostles, left the presence of the council. Now notice, they're sent out, they're released after having been beaten and warned again. What are they doing? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name the name of Christ, the name of Jesus. Verse 42, notice, notice what these persistent apostles kept doing. And every day in the temple, then from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They refused to listen to the Jewish leaders. And instead, they persist in following their Lord and Master's instruction to go and make disciples, embracing opposition for the name of Jesus Christ. Knowing indeed that this opposition actually is a privilege. Brothers and sisters, whenever you're granted the privilege and the stewardship of suffering some loss precisely because of your faith in Christ, rejoice. Why? Because as the apostles understood it, it means that God is considering you worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Whenever there's a friend that perhaps just doesn't want to be around you anymore because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, love that friend, miss that friend, it will hurt, but rejoice because you're considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Whenever coming to Jesus Christ results in a lack of comfort, we were talking, my wife and I this morning, about the commitment to be in church on the Lord's day. Is it not a sacrifice, brothers and sisters? Coming to Christ is a sacrifice of everything we have and it manifests itself in some key areas. We forfeit Lord's day. 
Right? And so when I'm talking to Christians about Lord's Day, they, they, they say I, they trust in Jesus Christ, they love the Lord, but they don't go to church. Maybe they sleep in, perhaps they go hiking, the Smoky Mountains on the Lord's Day. It's a beautiful day. We're going to miss church today. I can't help but think about the fundamental foundation of the Christian life being that of sacrifice. No, no. Coming to Christ means you forfeited your life, which, my goodness, includes but is not limited to Lord's Day morning and gathering with God's people, church family. The Christian life is, is one characterized by us forfeiting everything for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And it may be, it may be that some of us have the stewardship of suffering a greater loss in this life on account of our testimony for Jesus Christ. I pray that if that is to happen for any of us, God would grant us the grace in that moment. Even in the midst of perhaps fear, in the midst of this acute sense of losing so much, that he would grant us the grace to rejoice because we're considered in that moment worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. That's much of what it means to be a Christian in this life. We began, we began with this question. What must the church be about until Jesus returns, even amid persecution? That's the question with which we began. What must the church be about in between the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost and the return of Jesus Christ in the future when he makes all things new? And the answer really is found in the persistence of the apostles. And it's this, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we do anything, anything at all, we must unremittingly and unashamedly preach Christ and him crucified to others Every member of our church joins us in this mission. Every new believer baptized into Christ embraces this fundamental mission of the church. Persecution for the name of Christ has been a constant companion for the church. Constant. Since the days of the apostles, nothing new. This was also the case, as I thought this last week, for the early Baptists in the 17th century. We are First Baptist, pal, after all. And uh, while we don't, in any sense, believe that we are the body of Christ, we are part of the body of Christ and are privileged to be part of the body. Well, like the early chapters of Acts, the early Puritan Baptist stream, and so there are various Baptists during this time, but the Puritan Baptist stream of Christianity that was often known as the particular Baptist, this, this stream grew exponentially in the 17th century from the humble origins of a mere seven churches in and around London. This is 1644, seven churches, to about 130 churches in 1660. So from seven churches, and then 16 years later, 130 churches. It wasn't long before the Baptists, alongside the Congregationalists, we weren't unique in this respect, and the Presbyterians found themselves the target of opposition. There was one Baptist pastor at the time named John Bunyan. 
You may recognize Bunyan as the author of Pilgrim's Progress, which every chance I get, I want to exhort you, if you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, read Pilgrim's Progress. You can even buy Pilgrim's Progress in our bookstore as you walk out of here to the right. If you've already read Pilgrim's Progress, then read it again and again. It's a wonderful book for the follower of Christ in this life. Well, Bunyan was one of the first Baptist pastors arrested for preaching on November the 12th, 1660. He was scheduled to preach. And he received word that, John, whenever you get up to preach, the authorities have already planned, they're gonna be present and they're going to storm the pulpit and and take you off. They're going to apprehend you. And John Bunyan considered what this might mean. At the time, by the way, he was married and had four children. And John, knowing that this would result in his arrest, took the pulpit. And when he opened God's word to begin to preach, they rushed Bunyan, arrested him, and carried him off. Instead of fleeing, what Bunyan Bunyan believed was inevitable for the follower of Jesus Christ, he embraced persecution. While on trial, Bunyan was told that he would be released under one condition. All you have to do is this, Bunyan, you'll be released. Stop preaching. Bunyan refused. And John Bunyan spent all in all around 12 years in prison. John Bunyan, among so many other brothers and sisters, knew the answer to the question, what must the church be about, even amid persecution, in between the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost and the return of Jesus Christ someday in the future? Bunyan knew the church must be about proclaiming Christ. Church family, my exhortation to you this morning is embrace what the apostles embraced. Embrace what John Bunyan embraced. Embrace God's call for the church until he returns, boldly proclaim Christ, even amid persecution. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your kindness to us, your mercy, your goodness, the redemption accomplished for us through Christ 2,000 years ago. We're grateful for the power you displayed through the apostles and their ministry and even the continued power you display throughout church history as the church bears witness to Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize that that this life and this period of time in between Christ's first coming and his second is characterized by persecution against first the apostles and eventually against the church as a whole, the church universal. And yet, Father, we ask for grace the grace that was given to the apostles through the Spirit, the grace to persist in proclaiming Christ even amid persecution. We pray these things with great confidence that you have begun this work in us and among us and you will bring it to completion. Through Jesus we pray, amen.